we deal with the use of such technologies has to transform. And critical thinking and the ability to ask questions, the ability to not trust something that you see straight in front of you is going to be supremely important there. That immediately sets alarm bells ringing if you're going to see ChatGPT or similar technologies embedded in search engines or embedded inside other applications where what you're after is not plausibility, it's actually factual veracity. The use cases that are most likely to be powerful are not the ones where you get incremental improvements on something you are doing well already. These are the ones where you're going to make transformational change happen. If you're in the business of trying to manage risks in banking, this is a very exciting time actually to find better solutions and more efficient solutions. Well, welcome everybody to the second in our series of podcasts on demystifying risk. I'm Tim Roberts from the Risk Practice at Alex Partners. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Shamit Kundu, Head of Financial Services and Chief Strategy Officer at True Era, a leader in AI quality management. And I'm in a moment, I'm going to ask him to explain exactly what that means, because that's really question one. So Shamit, would you be kind enough to introduce yourself um, and a bit about your background and tell us um, about True Era? So I'm Shamik Kundu. I work at a California startup called True Era, which provides software to test, explain, debug, and monitor AI models. So we're in the business of creating trust in AI. Uh, I spent most of my career around data and algorithms, was the group chief data officer at Standard Chartered Bank until the end of 2020, uh, at which point I decided to focus uh, the rest of my professional energies on on this intersection between data algorithms and, and trust and risk. Um, uh, in addition to working at True Era, I also serve on various uh, government and regulatory bodies in this space, including the government of Singapore's AI and Data Ethics Committee uh, and a public-private forum run by the Bank of England and other industry forums in the US and Canada. Brilliant. Well, look, you've already touched on a number of the topics which I'm interested in and would like to kind of explore a bit today. I mean, AI has become a, a very hot topic in conversation, even in general conversation now, not just in specialist technology press, how we can understand what it's doing, how we can control it if we need to, and how we can get the best out of it. And in particular, I'm interested in how we can use AI to create tools for business in particular that are predictable and reliable, i.e. we know what they're doing, we know what they're going to give us. They're explainable, so we don't just know that they are giving us that. We can demonstrate to regulators or the public in whom we would like you know, to create trust that the, you know, the AI tools, the AI models are doing what we said they would do. Or if they're not, we know why and we know what they are doing so we can correct them because I think that's one of the problems that it's seen as a black box. And then finally, that they're doing things which are fair and reasonable and that they are treating people the way you'd want them to treat people. They're not introducing biases or prejudices into things like credit models or um, security systems or oh, and all sorts of other applications where AI might be used. So just to get into the first topic, I think it's hard to talk about AI without referring to chat GPT. Um, I don't want to trivialize this because obviously there's a lot of fun posts about chat GPT or generative AI in general used to create, you know, songs, poems, images, etc. But 
the interest in AI has been massively triggered in the wider population by chat GPT. I know lots of people who've tried using it. I've used it to create song lyrics myself. I've seen it being used to create code. And there's been articles about people essentially cheating and coding tests for job interviews using chat GPT. And an interesting moral question, is that cheating? Or is that creating a low-code solution? Uh, if you wanted to give it a more dignified title. But maybe we can start talking about ChatGPT. And what's what, what's your view on ChatGPT as a technology? Is it an interesting thing or is it a gimmick that's generated people's attention? I think there's a little bit of the latter. Uh, but underneath that, this is a uh, relatively revolutionary moment. I, when I said this, it's not ChatGPT itself, but a broader concept of of, uh, of foundational models, uh, of which generative AI is, of course, a very important use case. Uh, but the concept of foundational models, which is particularly important in, in language, uh, has indeed reached uh, some kind of an inflection point over the last few months. And, and ChatGPT just happens to be the one that has caught um, the public imagination. Now, there are three factors that, that are bringing us to this moment today. I mean, the first is scale. The, the computational feat uh, and the amount of data that these kinds of large language models have been trained on. ChatGPT's predecessor, GPT-3, was trained on 175 billion parameters. Uh, in the words of one of our founders, uh, Professor Anupam Data from Carnegie Mellon, pretty much all of the internet, right? Uh, being able to do that is fantastic. I mean, in the truest sense of the word fantastic, until recently it would have been, right? Uh, and people are talking about how this is just going to go up further. Uh, so that's one. The second is the way it uses human feedback. Now, human feedback has always been important in AI, as you know, you know, classical labeling. This is a cat. This is a picture of a cat. This is a picture of a dog, or this is an example of, of, of a sanctioned transaction. This is an, an example of a, uh, or, or a suspicious transaction. This is not. This kind of thing we've all been aware of in traditional machine learning. But the way uh, this kind, the, the underlying reinforcement learning works here is that a human being is also able to order 10 things in order of preference, as an example. So that the, the way the human input has been used for the training is also super important. Uh, and then finally, the reason that it really, um, the closest that it comes to being the, uh, using the term gimmick is, is the way it's been distributed. Uh, arguably, there were other alternatives that were equally powerful or close to being as powerful. But what uh, OpenAI did, of course, is literally opened it to, I believe it was 100 million users in record time. Right? It is perhaps the first time that something this powerful has been exposed to the general public. I mean, step back. This is not AI beating humans in some exceedingly difficult game of Go. This is not even a little more relatable self-driving car. This is something that every single one of us can relate to. Writing an essay in school, this is asking any question you want. So that is what has captured the public uh, ex excitement. And of course, that's also caused some of the fear, which we'll come to in a minute. So that's the chat GPT point. Like I mentioned, chat GPT is of course a, a, a broader part of a broader concept of foundation models. And that in some ways is even more important. Uh, what we're talking about here is not artificial general intelligence. So it's not a single AI, one AI to rule it all, one ring to rule it all. That's not what it is. Having said that, these are quite versatile in the way that they can be adopted. So for example, you can, historically, when you would build an AI model in language, for example, you would say, oh, I have a model for sentiment analysis. I have a different model for conversational chatbots. I have a third model to do topic summarization or classifying documents. 
what you have here is a single foundation model that can be adapted uh, across all these use cases. That is incredible, right? And as we'll see, uh, that, that opens up capabilities. So, so the broader point of foundational models, rather than just looking at just generative AI or just the aspect around ChatGPT, is indeed quite transformational in a way that, um, at least in my time around AI, which is not that long, but in the last, I would say, five, seven years uh, of working first at the bank and outside afterwards, I, I haven't seen anything like this moment before. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. And I think, as you say, one of the things which has engaged people is the notion that they're able to interact with it. Such a large number of people have been able to interact with it and start getting the feeling um, that they are interacting with something that is responsive, in, intelligent in a certain sense of the word. I mean, I won't get, to, let's not get into a philosophical debate about the Turing test on, in, that's a different podcast, I think, but it, there's certainly a feeling of interaction that you can have with it that goes a bit beyond talking to Siri or your, um, or, or Alexa that you might have experienced at home. The one thing I think which is challenging about using ChatGPT is, of course, it can give you fictitious answers to questions. If you ask it for a poem, that's, a, you know, that's a different kind of question. If you ask it for a fact, and it gives you, as, as Tim Harford revealed, a fictitious fact, he asked it for the most widely cited economics paper, and it gave a very plausible answer, naming two real economists, but it named a paper that didn't exist and had not been cited by anyone as a result. It created a fully plausible but fictitious answer to a factual question. And that immediately sets alarm bells ringing if you're going to see ChatGPT or similar technologies embedded in search engines or embedded inside other applications where what you're after is not plausibility, it's actually factual veracity. What, what do you think about this notion that applications like ChatGPT would be embedded in search engines and we might therefore find the plausibility creates problems for users. To some extent, the genie is out of the bottle, right? So it's 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 not possible to say we wouldn't have that. Um, there are, of course, um, ways to uh, mitigate the risk to technically, uh, including, for example, alternative approaches around um, citing. Now, of course, ChatGPT has been uh, both ChatGPT and other peers have been have been guilty of citing incorrect references, but at least if the references are verifiable with links, at least you can go back to that. So, so there are some technical solutions, Tim, but, but the crux of the problem you highlight, there is no simple answer to that. Uh, and I think a lot of it will go down to the way in which humans learn about the world the way in which humans learn how to deal. Uh, I mean, again, this is sounding a bit philosophical, but it's not. Um, it's it's a very here and now problem. I'll give you an example of, um, of, of of my younger daughter who's nine, and she was asking me, oh, so what's all this fuss about? And and there are schools that have said no use of chat GPT. Hers hasn't actually. They've said you can go ahead and use it. Uh, and I, I think I had a lucky break when I asked her to search something that she knew very well. Um, it happened to be Tintin, uh, the, the comics, of course. Uh, she's also a fan of Asterix, but not as much. Uh, so she, we, we came up with the question, in which Asterix does uh, Tintin appear? And uh, the answer was reasonably accurate. It is Asterix in Belgium, and it's actually the Thompson twins that appear there. Uh, but not, to my knowledge, Tintin himself. Um, and, and we later went back and reconfirmed that. Uh, there is 
possibility that a little child in somewhere there was Tintin, but it's not explicitly that. Now, why is this important? Here is somebody who knows something about that space. And therefore, for for the foreseeable future, my younger daughter at least, is 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 not going to believe everything that comes out of that, right? Now you need those moments, and until you have that ability to question, and she was lucky that she asked a question that it didn't give a perfect answer to. But if it had, if it creates that immune that that sense of kind of, don't worry, this is going to give me the right answer. That's a problem, right? So sorry, long-winded, slightly philosophical answer. There are technical solutions which typically involve providing, you know references that you can double click into and find those references. But there's also a slightly more philosophical, pedagogical answer, which is how we as humans, particularly the younger ones, learn about the world and how we deal with the use of such technologies has to transform. And critical thinking and the ability to ask questions, the ability to not trust something that you see straight in front of you is going to be supremely important there. No, that, that's an exceptionally good point because we we've got used to trusting a search engine or we're using Wikipedia, for example, if we're looking up historical fact. And actually what we need to do is apply the same critical thinking that we would if we ask a person. So I might ask a history professor a certain fact versus a friend of mine who studied history 30 years ago. But actually, of course, and the history professor is more likely to be right, but either of them could be wrong about a particular point of detail. So it, one of the things that probably has to come with these tools is the kind of education and awareness that trains people to understand what they're doing. And in a, I, I wrote a short blog post after the FT article about this fictitious economics paper and pointed out it's probably best not to think of as an AI tool as a colleague. It's not like, you know, the computer in Star Trek where you ask it a question and it's always right. Think of it rather as a tool. And that tool is probably going to give you the right answer, but may not, depending on the nature of the question. And you may, you know, if, if, if a lot depends on having the correct answer, like what is the, you know, what, what is the maximum safe speed to do a maneuver in a vehicle or something like that, something that is a safety related question, it needs to be verified. Whereas if it's a question like what year did the English Civil War end, probably it's not going to be a disaster if it gives you a slightly wrong answer. Let, let's tear ourselves away from chat GPT and similar topics, in, engaging though they are, and talk more generally about corporate or enterprise AI applications. And what, what, what do you think are the industries or business applications that are particularly well suited to AI use cases? So in terms of industries that, that have um, already used AI, not, not necessarily conversational AI or chat GPT, but AI in various forms uh, already. Uh, I, I've certainly found in my two years at Truera, there's almost a split between um, technology-first companies, um, social media, search, um, streaming video, e-commerce, where there is no alternative to using fully automated decision-making, where everything from customer targeting to pricing to retention to to fraud detection on a large um, uh, you know e-commerce site uh, or, or, or or an eBay like site to um, to even kind of finding harmful content the sheer impossibility of use, using human alternatives has meant that there is already widespread use of, of AI in, in the broadest sense right now for, for the most part except for harmful impacts of social media 
you could argue that those uses of AI have been more in your, uh, you know, what year did the civil civil war end kind of end, right? It can't do too much harm with the exception of social media. What's been there on the other side, though, are the areas like healthcare, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, anything that has a significant amount of safety element in there, right? There, the uses of AI in the core of the business has arguably rightly been much more limited. So that's been the, the story so far. Of, of, uh, one side is tech, tech first, not very high stakes use cases where it, it is the only way to work. I was talking with, with a CTO of a gaming company and saying, what do you mean do I use AI? I have 1 billion plus devices, um, 2 billion plus customers. There is no other way I can you know, do stuff with them versus traditional industries, banking, insurance, pharma, healthcare, et cetera, where it's been far more uh, difficult um, so far, right? And of course, there are things in between. Transportation and self-driving cars would come somewhere in between. So that's been the history. Now, coming back again, not to chat GPT, but to the broader concept of generative uh, models, sorry, generative models and, and foundation models more broadly, there are the, the, the industries where there is the maximum potential uh, and more broadly, the use cases that are most likely to be powerful are not the ones where you get incremental improvements on something you were doing well already. These are the ones where you're going to make transformational change happen, right? So healthcare is one. As you know, the cost of healthcare in every country in the world, bar none, is going through the roof. The quality that one can offer at uh, with kind of humans living longer, with more diseases, etc., it's just impossible to solve. And that's ideal, right? And there, are, there is certainly a lot of promise, everything from making it easier for physicians to, to gather all the information from your x-ray to your, to your health records to their uh, typed in notes or transcribed notes and come up with a, you know, a useful insight uh, to even you know, the end patient getting useful insights uh, to, of course, things like drug, drug discovery, et cetera. That should be one of the most powerful uses of, of AI, right? That would certainly be in my, in my list. Uh, education itself, which we've talked about earlier, again, another area where in most developed countries and indeed in many developing countries, the challenges of continuous skill development, et cetera, is, is such so heavy. There's just no way we can use existing mechanisms to, to train everyone. That's another area. So I, I would say my macro point is stop using or stop thinking of AI as merely a tool to solve problems that you were already solving through other means, because there might be other means of doing it. Uh, and think of the really hard nuts to crack, which haven't been done before, and try and see how that can happen. And in an industry that you and I know well, Tim, banking, this could be addressing the still significant problem around financial fighting financial crime and fraud. This could be about financial inclusion. It could be about, together with data gathering, it could be about how to support the green agenda, all of these are very tough problems to solve. Let's point the AI gun at those is what I would say. That, that's very powerful. But in other words, not thinking of it as an automation tool, thinking of it as a problem-solving tool that gets into problems which are fundamentally hard for humans to crack alone. And just to click on two of those examples, I was previously at IBM where we applied Watson to first medical diagnostics. That was their first use case and then latterly moved on to risk and compliance in financial services. And in the, in the medical case, they were more focused on diagnostics for patients presenting with symptoms 
And what one of the things they found, and Ginny Rometty, the then CEO, spoke very eloquently about, was what what Watson was actually doing was creating augmented intelligence. She she said, I use AI in this context to mean augmented intelligence, where they found the most powerful diagnostician was a doctor supplemented by AI. In other words, what you're getting is it's a bit like something you'd find in a science fiction novel, a doctor who has at their disposal all case studies and textbooks because Watson is able to read all of that material. And so in the most likely cases of diagnosis, there's the AI is not acting. But what it's doing is putting at the doctor's fingertips some of the less probable but more severe explanations for a set of symptoms. And they had some very powerful examples of where rare diseases or rare forms of cancer, rare tropical diseases were correctly diagnosed, where it's unlikely a nurse or a doctor in a regional medical center could possibly have seen a class, a a case of that particular ailment previously. So it gives, you know, the maximum power of medical diagnostics to every patient. You're really going, I think, a step further, which is into the world of preventative medicine, if we can leverage AI, in other words, if we can identify the the precursors of more significant illnesses or diagnose early, the very early warning signs of a significant illness, that can be hugely beneficial to improving quality of life. And as as we get older, of course, we don't just want to have extra years of life, we want to have more higher quality of life. Moving to, to, to the kind of, as you say, the familiar territory of banking, it occurs to me Well, I've always felt a very relevant use case for AI is spotting suspicious activity. There are lots of risk processes in a bank that are designed to spot a suspicious activity, a payment, a securities transaction, a data movement, an account opening, or a customer application. Any or all of the above could be suspicious. And we're trying to screen out those to prevent fraud, terrorist financing, money laundering, etc., and what you often, of course, see in banks, including the bank where you used to work, compliance operations centers where there's very boring jobs being done by people screening alerts that have been generated by the first generation of screening tools, where it's a sort of rules-based system for identifying a potentially suspicious transaction. And then humans have to look at it more closely, close it down. That I've always felt that's a perfect example for an AI application because, of course, every case, every false positive that is closed down as another piece of training data to train the system to spot better what's suspicious and what isn't suspicious and to get as close as possible to the intuition of an experienced compliance specialist, i.e. as, as, you know, as quickly as possible, the tool can replicate the insight that comes from someone who's been doing this for 20 years and knows what you know what insider trading tends to look like. It won't be perfect, but it's getting just closer and closer to being an efficient screening system. On that one, I think one of the things that I, I was as I was getting into some of these foundational models, I realized is there is actually not, not chat GPT itself, but the underlying foundation model concept is adding a brand new dimension to that. So you're absolutely right. The traditional the first users of of uh, of 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 
machine learning in, in fighting financial crime was primarily reduction of false positives, uh, where you are actually learning from the behavior of past human investigators to say it's likely that this alert will be closed down automatically or should be closed down automatically. Uh, I think in some areas, particularly trade finance, uh, some types of uh, trade surveillance, etc., we have had instances of, and certainly in fraud, uh, we have had instances of AI kind of generating new patterns that might be interesting. What I have just started looking at, which I think is really interesting, is, you know, that step back to your point about the doctor, which has the entire wisdom of humanity at their, at their, uh, at their tips. This is really powerful because one of the biggest problems is not necessarily just flagging. It is that final decision on whether this is problematic or not. And one reason that the transactions or the account openings get missed out is because there is information in many different silos. This transaction information itself, the KYC file itself, the interaction with the party itself, individually, these might not be strong enough. But if you had a machine that was able to read the five calls that this person made, the last three times, the branches they went to, the place from which they made their last phone call, and you combine that with all these other factors, you're again able to bring together really powerful insight. And that is an additional dimension, I think, which will kind of, go, going back to your doctor example, it will make that investigator able to approach this in a far more powerful manner. That sounds right. And I think if you're in the business of trying to manage risks in banking, this is a very exciting time, actually, to find better solutions and more efficient solutions. Let's think then not just about how AI can help us do risk management, what risks come from AI as the sort of last bit of this conversation. There seem to me, as we hinted at actually both of us at the beginning of this conversation, some areas where AI can introduce risks. It can potentially introduce biases, for example. It might create over-reliance potentially and lead, you know, lead users in the wrong direction. What, what, do you, what risks come to mind for you when you think about AI being used and put into, you know, to live applications? Well, so I think the biggest risk which you've already hinted at is, is the risk that it doesn't work, right? And we have had false false uh, dawns when something has been thought to be really good and then it's, it's not working out. Uh, one big example of that was during COVID where, um, you know, AI was singularly, I mean, there's, there's kind of meta studies on how bad um, AI models had been in predicting either disease or the severity of the disease, et cetera, right? There's a lot of articles on that. So that's the first one, that it it um, it just isn't good enough. Uh, I think then you get into, indeed, bias, but bias not just in the form of, uh, you know, I'm being, or AI is being biased against a particular community and accentuating ex um, existing biases, uh, but in the broader sense of the term, which it could be not about a group at all. It could be about letters of credit, in India versus letters of credit in the UK, the same bank. It's not about a particular group of people. You're not kind of doing bias in the human sense of the word. But the fact that many types of AI fundamentally depend on the data that you use to train it, and therefore, if that's not representative, it causes problems, which is bias in the broader sense beyond only fairness. That, of course, is, is another problem. The third one, which is a, a relative, if you will, of... of um, of, of the reliability point is sustained reliability or robustness, which is not just did it work yesterday and did it work in the first few months, but how sensitive will it be to small changes in, in the input, right? And of course, there are big changes like the pandemic or big interest rate changes, which will throw models off. But if, if, you, if you 
overfit models to very small you know, points in the data, you end up creating something that's extremely brittle and will break with small changes in input data. So these are the traditional problems, Tim, that certainly my company has been focused on, both in terms of diagnosing them upfront, but also monitoring them on the on the way around. And we're not alone. There are many others who do that as well. I think what is more challenging with the most recent kind of uh, pieces are, are three or four other things, which are, are kind of um, four, five, actually, the other things that I think we should think about. One is, particularly when you get to generative AI, it's, it's, the, it's the risk for toxicity, it's the risk for misinformation, it's the risk for mis misinformation leading to societal negative effects. You know, we don't have to look too far behind to see how, how that can impact societies and polities. So that's a big new risk compared to traditional kind of discriminative AI. So that's one. Uh, I think the second one, uh, it's a non-trivial point, but these big language models, image models, et cetera, can consume a lot of energy. And at some point we do need to think about, um, and I think there's again, a lot of uh, stuff out there in the press, but we do need to think about what are the alternatives and actually is this the most efficient and effective way of doing it. There's of course the effect on employment. And I genuinely don't know how to address that. I mean, there are areas like healthcare where throwing no amount of people could have helped us with with COVID or in many other, and look at the UK or any other country with their health services, you cannot throw enough humans to, to have the effect you want, right? But there's also genuine concerns about loss of employment. So that also has to be uh, something you think about. A fourth one is, again, these large models are very concentrated in a relatively small number of companies or entities uh, because of their extreme dependency on processing power. So the effect it will have on a small number of entities uh, private sector or governmental, controlling so much of our lives is also worth worrying about. But then I'll finish off with the one that personally worries me the most, which is, will we as humans learn how to, I think we did a decent job of learning how to work with search engines. We figured out, you know, most of us, I think, figured out that not everything that comes out of a search engine can be taken for granted. It is going to be more difficult when you have a, a, a chat GPT kind of come or, or something equivalent appearing extremely confident, right? Um, I, I read today about uh, the leader in Venezuela making it look like he inaugurated a massive stadium with 20,000 people and with a US commentator saying good things. Turned out there was nobody in the stadium and the commentator was an AI, right? So how do you even teach like those of us who've not seen, who've not grown up with AI might still have some degree of skepticism. There's a whole generation that needs to learn differently, right? Uh, not just because we want to prevent cheating in schools, but because we want them to be able to think for themselves in a world where so much is at their fingertips. That to me is probably the biggest risk uh, and not one that I have an answer to, to be honest. I completely sympathize with that last point. This is This is very much the domain of science fiction, like the movie I, Robot, where you have to ask yourself, you know, um, some, uh, you know, you might be having a conversation with an AI that is extremely confident, but that confidence may be misleading. I'm hopeful that the younger generation who are growing up with AI now will learn from the beginning to be skeptical. We, we are susceptible, or at least we've grown up with the notion that computers may fail, i.e. they might, they might um, you know, not deliver an answer, but they won't deliver a plausible but wrong answer it, you know it's i you know if you ask a computer two plus two you will get four every time or no answer the fact that you might now be interacting with something that could say five or could say three 
is 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 unfamiliar to us because it's not it's not a glorified calculator that you're talking to. It's doing something something very different is happening. I'm hopeful that our children will bring the appropriate skepticism or critical thinking to bear in the future. But I suppose that's a message to all of us who are parents to think about that or and indeed educators to think about how does the education system need to change in the presence of tools like this? How should critical thinking be applied to essays or books which are read, which may have been generated not by a human? On on that note then, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for all of your thoughts, Shamik. I think this is a an area where there's so much change happening so quickly we could reconvene you know not very far in the future and have a similarly rich conversation but this has been super helpful and thank you very much indeed for exploring it with me and thanks very much also to everyone listening to this episode i hope you're able to join us for the next episode in our demystifying risk series goodbye